Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue a new series today called Life Lessons from King David. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 2 to 4, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, David Becomes King. Don't get me wrong, I am very pleased to live in a democracy. See, every four to five years, we decide whether we, the people, think the government we have should be allowed to lead us. You know, in theory, at least, it's supposed to mean that we force our government to serve the people. And as Winston Churchill was so famously to have said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government out there with the exception of everything else that's ever been tried. So given that I agree with Churchill, let me share the failings of democracy. Because of the nature of the beast, the only leaders we ever get in a democracy are those who beat out their opponents in any way possible. I'm really telling you no secrets when I tell you that leaders come to the fore who have belittled their opponents and exposed their dark secrets and made themselves out to be the only alternative. We call this negative campaigning or smear campaigning. It's the attempt to make the opponent look like, you know, he's very dark, he's got a hidden agenda, he's a very dangerous man or woman who would horribly abuse everything when he or she got in. Or it's the attempt to expose a sexual secret or to show the the horrible way in which this person has voted on some bill in the past. It's a way of defaming someone. Entire professional campaign teams specialize in this way of doing things. You know, we the people all claim that we hate this kind of thing, but in truth, we all know that this kind of campaigning actually works. We may claim to hate it, but we definitely fall for it every time. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 20, 25 to 26. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You know, the point Jesus was making is that the very nature of political leadership, no matter which form it takes, produces men who boast in power, power over opponents and power over people, not men who serve for the sake of serving. And let's get to David, the man who became king. You know, in the last chapter, we read that David heard that his king, the man who wanted him dead, had actually died in battle. And David openly weeps. David never doubted that King Saul was the Lord's anointed. Even though the prophet Samuel had anointed him and told him that he would be the next king, David was convinced if this was from God, God would bring it about. For his part, he would never lift his hand against the current serving Lord's anointed. And with that, we come to 2 Samuel chapters 2 to 4. Let's start with chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So Saul no longer pursued him, and his own town, Ziglag, has been burned to the ground. And David's now in a position when he can move from the extreme south, that is in the desert, move north into the major sections of Israel. And it makes political sense. I mean, how is he going to be Israel's next king if he stays outside of Israel's major cities? But before he makes what we might think to be a wise and astute political move, he decides to pray and ask God. Now, this is not the first time that David has made a direct inquiry of the Lord. What shall I do next? 
You might think of 1 Samuel 23. David was praying, shall I go and save the city of Kilah? And God says, save it. David had developed a pattern of not acting until God instructed him to act. And we might stop here and wonder, I mean, how is it that God actually answered him? Well, some suggest that Abiathar, the priest, would use the Urim and Thummim to obtain an answer. And that was a device that gave you a yes or no answer. It's kind of like, you know, flipping a coin, believing that God meticulously governs all things. Well, others suggest that David obtained the answer through the words of the prophet Gad. And still others say that he simply waited on God and God directed him in his own heart. Well, however it was done, we're told that we do know that David was determined that he would never run ahead of God. Rather than seeking personal advantage, he would follow God's leading. We should learn from that. We should do the same. So God tells David, go to Hebron, which is in the territory of Judah, which, as we know, is David's home tribe. And furthermore, we also know that David had sent a part of the spoil from his battle with the Amalekites to the elders in that area. So this would be a friendly place for him, a place that would surely welcome him. And according to verse 3, the minute he gets there, the men of Judah, that is the elders from all the tribe of Judah, gather together at Hebron, and immediately they anoint David as their king. And that's the second time that David is anointed as king. The first was when Samuel did it, when he was still very young. And now the elders of Judah do it. But please remember, it's only from the tribe of Judah. What would the rest of Israel do? Well, let's read 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Well, Jabesh Gilead would have been to the north and the east of Hebron, and if you could imagine the geography of Israel, it would have been on the, the eastern side of the Jordan River. So these men would have been a very good distance from David. They would not have been from the tribe of Judah, and they would have been fiercely loyal to Saul. A bad leader would have ignored them. You know, they're going to simply not support me. And perhaps they wouldn't. But David sees a virtue in their loyalty to the anointed king of Israel. Yeah, he's asking them to support him now. But he wants them to know that he sees in them men of principle, and therefore he's ready to honor them. You know, it's a lesson that we should learn from David. Honor those to whom honor is due. God wants it of us. And when men have supported our enemy out of a virtuous principle, a godly man or woman acknowledges that. An unprincipled man or woman does not. And with that, David now asks the men of Jabesh Gilead to acknowledge him. He is the next king. Samuel the prophet has anointed him. Show the same principled loyalty now to me. And as, as we're going to see, that might well have worked. But then suddenly, an unprincipled man enters the arena. See, what follows is a battle of wills. Abner has been the commander of Saul's men. And as we know from 1 Samuel, he's been one of the chief architects in hunting David down. He sees what David is up to, and he immediately takes action. 
Look, Jonathan is dead, and so Abner takes Ishbosheth, Saul's youngest and only surviving son, and he anoints him as king and makes the headquarters of the new kingdom in Mahanaim. In effect, Ishbosheth is king over Israel, and David is king over the tribe of Judah. And it's at this point that we might expect, yep, a civil war. And in truth, it's going to come to that as the first skirmishes in a very long and protracted war seem to to shape up very early. Indeed, it starts very badly that the two commanders, Abner, who heads up the troops for King Ishbosheth, and Joab, who heads up the troops for King David, decide they're going to have a meeting at a town called Gibeon, which is very close to the border of the division of what was now the two kingdoms. And then in an act of bravado, the two commanders decide they're going to select 12 men from each side, and they're going to engage them in a, well, what else can I call it, but a gladiatorial-like contest. It's a fight to the death for the amusement of the generals and to prove who has the bravest and best fighting men. It's kind of like David and Goliath, two champions meeting on the battlefield. But in this case, it all ends badly, for it's a horrifying fight that leaves no survivors. All 24 wound and eventually kill each other. You might have to ask, what are the ethics of these two men, these two generals, Abner and Joab? That event leads to outrage, and a battle forms that very day in which Asahel, the brother of Joab, is killed on the battlefield. Indeed, it was Abner himself who killed him, and Joab is left seething with anger and vowing revenge. And a civil war ensues, and it's an ongoing war which is going to last for seven and a half years. Second Samuel 3 verse 1 says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Yeah, David was slowly gaining the advantage and ever so slowly, it seemed that if events were to continue, he would become king. But then everyone would have known someone who would have been wounded in battle. Bitterness forms, historic divisions are built. Years later, we find during the reign of Rehoboam, these divisions have not gone away. Was David right on insisting on his own kingship and on defeating Ishbosheth? See, that's such an important question, and it does demand an answer. Is David humble, or is he simply self-serving? These are challenging days. Many, some our neighbors, family, friends, find themselves in difficulty they would not have imagined only a few months ago. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something or somewhere to place our confidence. And for many, that means a considered rediscovery of their faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. I know for Back to the Bible, these days have provided a stark reminder of the need, privilege, and opportunity to represent Jesus Christ through the teaching of the Bible. In short, it's reinforced for us the need to keep showing up, to remain faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Your continued support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada is essential. God's people across Canada recognizing the times and responding with the truth of God's Word. To discover more about Back to the Bible Canada or to offer a gift to support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible.
I began by saying that Jesus warned his followers not to have the attitude of the rulers of this world who would gain power and then hold power by lording it over others. And so we have to wonder, is David the kind of man that Jesus warned us about? Indeed, as we look at this stage of David's life, we see him as a man with, with all the trappings of kingly power. I mean, look at the description of David's family life. It's in 2 Samuel 3, 2-5. It says, And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third was Absalom, son of Maacah, the daughter of Telmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephetiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithraim of Iglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. See, what's fascinating about this read is not only the drama that these six sons are going to later play out, but that these six sons were born to six different wives. See, David came to Hebron with two wives, but he seems intent on building a harem. Indeed, if you look at Absalom's mother, well, she's called Maacah. She's the daughter of Telmai, who is the king of Geshur. So clearly what we have here is what was often done in the ancient world. Marriages of royal daughters to neighboring kings was a part of international treaties in which kings would enter into military alliances as well as trading alliances with other countries. So it may well be that one of the reasons David was so slowly winning the war with Ishbosheth is because he was far more adept at building treaties with surrounding nations and he was cementing them through marriage and so he was adding wives. It may well be that all of David's marriages were a part of a very strategic plan to win alliances and gain favors with powerful people, both within Judah and then within Israel and then among the surrounding nations. So at this point, we face two problems in the kingship of David. And the first, it's his polygamy. It's growing. You might remember that by the time we come to a later civil war, which is caused by David's son Absalom, that Absalom's first act upon entering into Jerusalem is to go in and sleep with his father's many concubines. And concubines were secondary wives. And so it seems quite clear that David gathered together a stable of wives and concubines, both for his political power and also for his pleasure and for his prowess. So David, however else we think of him, is a polygamist. He's a man of multiple wives. And at this point in time, the Bible, well, it doesn't actually forbid polygamy, but the Bible does state God's intention for marriage. At the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2:24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, not to his wives, but his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They, in this passage, refers to two, not to eight. Whatever we think of polygamy, we know that it wasn't forbidden in the Old Testament. We also know that in the New Testament, no one was allowed to become an elder or a church leader if that man had more than one wife. And so a pattern was later established as to the ideal. In fact, from Jesus' teaching, for instance, on the matter of divorce, he speaks of a man divorcing his wife with the assumption that he has but one wife. And furthermore, in Paul's writings, Ephesians 5.33, it says about marriage, however, let each one of you love his wife singular as himself, and let the wife, singular, see that she respects her husband. And so the New Testament simply assumes God's ideal, which comes from the beginning of creation. 
But of course, sin disrupts and distorts and abuses and twists the ideal. And as we see in David, yes, he's a man after God's own heart, but he's also a flawed man. Now, Deuteronomy 17 contains some of the laws that kings in the future needed to obey. David would have known this. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, And he that is the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, Deuteronomy doesn't tell us how many wives are too many. In the end, as far as we know, David might have only had eight. And as far as concubines go, well, we don't know. But we do know that what one generation does in some form of moderation, the next generation will do to excess. Solomon, David's son, would have 700 wives, 300 concubines. And this leads Solomon to Israel's downfall. So what do we make of David's war with Ishbosheth? Is David lacking humility when he carries on a military campaign to gain mastery over all of Israel? Well, that answer is actually easy to answer. Nowhere up to that point in time was there even the slightest indication that the next king of Israel would be chosen because he was the son of the previous king. See, up till that point in time, a king would be chosen when a legitimate, recognized prophet of God would anoint the next king. And that duty had rightfully fallen to Samuel. He was the one who anointed the first king, Saul, and then he had anointed Israel's second king, who was David. And Abner's insistence to make Ishbosheth king was contrary to God's declared will for his people. See, David's not being arrogant when he refuses to relinquish his hold on the national kingship. He's acting in accordance with God's revealed will. Eventually, General Abner's motives would become very plain. He decides to have sexual relations with one of the late King Saul's concubines. As we've already noted, these wives that kings kept were considered a sign of their power, and Abner, seeing that he had chosen a rather weak and compliant king, that is, Ishbosheth, decided to extend his own power by demonstrating who the real power was in Israel. In effect, Abner wants to be the king of Israel. And it's at this time that King Ishbosheth, as weak as he was, objects. And then in response, General Abner defects. And that's when, for the first time, because of his desire for power, Abner remembers the will of God. 2 Samuel 3, 17-19 says, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. Notice how telling that passage is. Abner, all the while, knew well and good that God had promised the kingdom to David. So why had he been supporting his own puppet king for the last seven and a half years, resulting in multitude of deaths? Well, we already know the answer. Abner wants power. And secondly, notice how Abner tells the elders of Israel that he knows that it's been their desire that they would have David as their king. See, Abner now acknowledges that he knows they've been seeking David, if only he hadn't been there to stop them. Why didn't they get David? The answer, Abner stood in the way. 
It's always Abner. Abner's desire for power. That's the reason for the war. Men of power always assert themselves over against God's will and against the desire of the majority of God's people. So let's make a long story short. David's general, David's commander of his army, recognizes this moment to be a threat to his own power. And so he murders Abner. And then not long after that, realizing a vacuum in power, two of King Ishbosheth's captains murder King Ishbosheth, and with that, David's competition is completely gone. And this, at this moment of his victory, that's when we see King David as a man after God's own heart. Because what he does next is going to unite the entire nation. Instead of gloating over the death of General Abner and blaming him for the long war, David mourns him and publicly announces who it is that was responsible for his death. It was his own commander, Joab. And then he demands that Joab tear his clothes and publicly mourn for Abner. Must have been humiliating for Joab. There would be no gloating in David's camp. Israel had suffered too much. This was a time for national sorrow. He would insist on it. See, there are some people when God gives them victory over their enemies, simply can't restrain themselves. They want to dance on their enemies' graves. But David does the opposite, and he even goes one step further. He executes the men who killed King Ishbosheth. No matter how this transpired, David would not countenance murder. Neither would he humiliate those who followed the ill-fated leadership of a man whom God had not chosen. What was at stake for David? was a bleeding and deeply divided nation that needed to find a leader who could demonstrate that he loved the people on both sides of the divide. See, it's easy to play up a divide, especially when you've won. But David would be a man who would love those whom he had conquered. 2 Samuel 5 verse 1 simply says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. David becomes king of all. Thanks, John. You know, Abner's life probably represents this expression well. Sex is the fall of young men, but power is the fall of older men. So maybe Abner's life is sort of a cautionary tale for those those of us who are more mature. Yeah, there really does come a time when you get older where you want to make sure that whatever leadership that you provide, and I do think that we should continue to be involved in the Lord's work until you know, Christ calls us, but that we should make sure that we're not blocking or that what we're doing is not causing more harm in our later years uh, than good. That's a good word, John. Thanks so much. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You remind us every day, you challenge us to ensure that the calling of God to provide excellence in Bible teaching remains uncompromised. And that's exactly the mark we're striving to hit every day. Recently, we received this note from a listener. Thank you for staying true to the gospel regardless of changing times. We're so grateful. And it's with humility we recognize the trust our listeners place in this ministry. The need to share the gospel, the good news, trustworthy Bible teaching is critical and your gracious gifts allow this to take place. On behalf of every member of our ministry team, thank you for what you've already done. And in advance, thank you for continuing to stand with us. 
To discover all the Bible resources available to you or to offer a financial gift to support these Bible teaching programs, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.